The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark this summer and we're looking at the Hallelujah Psalms and we're working our way from 146 to the end, but there are other hallelujah psalms besides those, and we're going to intersperse those between the psalms, so, or between 146 and 150. So last week we looked at 146. Today we're going to look at 113. We'll do 147 next week, but let's look at Psalm 113. This is another hallelujah psalm, and what we describe them is these are bookend psalms that will begin and end with the Hebrew word hallelujah, and it just praise the Lord, and that's how this psalm begins and ends. So let's give attention to God's word together. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. On one hand, this psalm is very plain, uh, telling us clearly what we're to do. But on the other hand, it's profound, it's mysterious, it's amazing. And so starting from the plain and then moving to the profound, the psalmist is simply telling us what we are to do, who's to do it, when we're to do it, and why we're to do it. What we are to do is to praise God, verse 1, and that's how the psalm ends. But then we're told specifically what we're to praise, his name. Praise his name. Then we're told who's to praise God. Answer, O servants of the Lord, we're to praise him. And then when are we to praise him? Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. While you're awake, (laughs) praise him all the time. And if you recall the book of Malachi, the people of God were bringing these lame offerings to God, and they were giving to God what was pitiful and paltry and diseased. And you have this great profound promise from God in Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is going to make his name great among the nations? Because I think a lot of people are getting discouraged. And they're looking around what they're seeing on the news. And we're forgetting what God is doing in Africa, in Asia, and in South America, and around the world. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And we're here, we're told, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. They're calling and reminding each other of these truths. I think a lot of our problems, I think J.B. Phillips was right on it. Our God is too small. And he says, this is a quote of his, he said, it is safe to say that many of our troubles in the Christian life stem from the fact that our God is too small. Well, the psalmist tells us 
why we are to praise him. Verses 4 to 9, we've gone from what we're to do, who's to, who is to praise the Lord, when we're to do it, but then why? And verses 4 to 9 give the reasons why we're to praise our God. And the answer is that our God, on the one hand, in verses 4 and 5, are four, yeah, four, he's high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. And then we're told that our God looks down or he humbles himself. He stoops down on the heavens and the earth and then he raises, up, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And so what we're seeing is our God is both transcendent and imminent. He's majestic and he's merciful. He's gloriful, yet he's gracious. He's, he's great and yet he's good. He's sovereign, yet he's sympathetic. He's all the above. And so this psalm is giving us this picture, first of all, of the greatness of God. And I love in the, in the summer, people are going on different vacations and they're experiencing and seeing things of God's creation. And for me, just being in Alaska, for me, the highlight of there was so many wonderful things and I've got a bunch of pictures now in my office that are hanging. So if you wanna see some pictures of, of Alaska, one, one is animals, of one of the three pictures in my office of different five by sevens, but Kim and I had the privilege to go up in a float plane, and we just happened to come across this, this place called um, Fish Lake, and we get to Fish Lake, and there was this little plane out there, a float plane, and then we saw another one coming in, and we were able to catch a ride, and we'd worked it out with this pilot, and he was actually going back to pick up some other, uh, pick up the fishing guide and his dog to a remote lake that was inaccessible, there were no rides, no roads there. <clears throat> and so he says, I gotta go pick them up, do you wanna ride now? And so first of all, before he took us over to that lake, he took us towards the Talkeetna Mountains, and as we're flying in this float plane, <clears throat> hold on a second, I've been in a bunch of small planes with my dad and my, my brother. <clears throat> I couldn't believe how low he was flying in the midst of these mountains. And we were looking for wildlife, which we didn't see any wildlife, but um, he told us as we crossed this one river, he said, from here on out, he said, this is uninhabited. No humans live here. And then he said, the pilot, you know, we've got all earmuffs and, you know, hot mics, and he says, if you own five acres here, why not own a million? And he just points as far as the eye can see, there's no human living there. And it's just vast, vast, incredible, mountainous, lush Alaska. And we came over this one mountain, and I, I felt like I was running off the cliff with a hang glider, because we were going slow, and we were so low to the ground. I can show you a video. And then you look down and we're a couple thousand feet and then there's this river that just is snaking. And it was like the, the feeling of going over this and seeing God's glory thousands of feet below and realizing he owns it all, it's all his. And you get these experiences when you're, when you're on a mountaintop and you're looking at God's creation. And what we're seeing here in this text is, is God is saying he's high above so much higher than that. We might have seen Mount Denali at 20,000 feet, but God is so much higher. He's above all nations. His glory 
above the heavens, above the firmament, above the stars. Now, you just think about this. We're getting these pictures back from the, from the JWST, right? The James Webb Space Telescope. And we're seeing thousands of galaxies that we've never seen before. We don't even know how big the universe is in diameter. We've tried to measure it, but it's expanding as we speak, and we can't get to the end of it. It's greater than our ability to get our arms around God's creation. Well, recently, a little while back, they had a guy on 60 Minutes. He was a couple scientists, and they were talking about the JWST, this James Webb Space Telescope. And this guy was waxing eloquent, and he was talking about, basically, we're at the beginning stages of understanding astronomy. Beginning stages. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, the, and, and the interviewer asked him, how, if I remember correctly, how much do you think we know? of astronomy and of the galaxies and all this. And this brilliant scientist says, we know about 5%, 5%. You're telling me, and 95%, we don't even know. I mean, if you just like look up dark matter and you just start reading scientists talking about dark matter, it almost becomes hilarious because you realize they really aren't really sure what dark matter is. They have different things they can come up with, but a lot of it, we have no idea what that really is. But he pulls up a couple of slides on this, and one of the slides that he pulls up, he says he pulls up this image, and he says all of these dots here represent galaxies. There are 130,000 galaxies in this slide, half of which we've never seen before. So for the first time in the history of the world, we are seeing 65,000 galaxies that the human eye has never seen before. And he says we've discovered the most distant galaxy in the universe, the one that is furthest away from us that we currently know about. And he zooms in on this tiny thing, and he says this galaxy is more than 33 billion light years away. And God just says that his glory is above the heavens. So if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take us eight minutes to get to the sun going at the speed of light. It would take us 33,000 years at the speed of light to get to the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross the local group, you'd have to travel for 2 million years at the speed of light. The local group belongs to the vast Virgo cluster, part of the even larger local supercluster, which is 500 million light years across. And to cross the entire universe as we know it, at the speed of light, would take what we think at this point, and the number keeps getting bigger, but 46 billion light years. And God says his glory is above all that. And so when he comes from heaven to earth, is he going 46 billion light years or further? I, we don't know. We just know it's way beyond what our little minds, when it says he's high, above all nations, his glory above the heavens. 
I mean, this is what Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon, 1865, he wrote a sermon called From the Dunghill to the Throne, so well over 100 years before the Hubble telescope was launched in 1990, and the Hubble telescope looks like child's play now compared to the JWST. But he said this in 1865, the greatness and majesty of the Most High God are utterly inconceivable. The most masterly minds, when in the most spiritual state, have felt it impossible for the utmost stretch of their imagination to reach out to the grandeur of God. Our loftiest con conceptions of the universe probably far, fall very far short of what it really is. Although the researches of astronomy have revealed facts suppressing all the powers of the human minds in the attempt to grasp them, thought, reason, understanding, and even imagination are bewildered in the vast and illimitable fields of space amidst the marvels of God's handiwork. Yet all the wonders which the human eye have seen or mortal spirit guessed at are but part of his ways. We have no more than one stanza of creation's never-ending psalm. We have viewed but one stone in the vast mosaic of the Maker's works. An infusorial atom of life in a drop of water may know as much as, as much as of the great sea as we do of the universe as a whole. An emmet creeping over a sand heap by the seaside must not boast of having counted the grains which bound the ocean, nor must the most learned mortal dream that he has a full idea of the vast creation of God. And so no wonder Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, in his prayer to God, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you, God and Heaven and the heaven, highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that I built? And so when the psalmist considers this, he looks at the heavens, the work of your fingers. He says, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So what I want you to do this morning is under your sermon notes in the back of your bulletin, or if you've got a sheet of paper, we're going to, do, we're going to make a little... We're going to draw something this morning. That's what I want you to do. Everybody get out a sheet of paper. And in the top of your sheet of paper, I'm serious. I know some of you don't really want to do this. I know, we're Presbyterians. What's he talking about? He's making us do something here. I want you to make a big circle, like so, at the top of your page big circle then leave some room underneath of it and I want you to make a much smaller circle okay I'm not very good in art but that's that's for starters okay big circle little circle and then I want you to write in between the two not in capital letters I want you to write an N and then a U it's really not that hard, okay? You got it? Big circle, little circle, N and a U. Does everybody have that? I don't want you looking at me because you really haven't done it, but give it a try. Well, I'm going to come back to these, all right? Now, here is classic Cornelius Van Til, who wrote a lot of books on apologetics, was a professor, Westminster Seminary. He was, his big thing was the creator creature distinction or the creator creature distinction 
And that's where you get the two circles. The top circle, write in creator. And in the bottom circle, you write creation and creature. Okay, it's important. So write those in. That's where we get the creator-creature distinction. This is what Van Til once said. He wrote a letter to Carl F.H. Henry, who was in charge of Christianity Today, also a great theologian. And he told him, it's our business as Christians to begin our interpretation of reality upon the presupposition of the creator-creature distinction as basic to everything else. If you don't recognize there's two circles, you're in big trouble, is what he's getting at. And it's funny because C.S. Lewis says, this is like the hardest problem because for, he says, what naturalism cannot accept is the idea that there's a God who stands outside of nature and made it. You see, Carl Sagan says the cosmos is all there ever was or ever will be. You that are going to go to college someday and, and sit under classes, you're not getting any of the big circle. All you're getting is everything is bottom circle. There's nothing else. That's called naturalism, or we could call it pantheism, that everything's God. But the reality is there's really no difference between pantheism and naturalism because neither affects your life whatsoever. But if there's a God who made you and you're accountable to him and he's made everything, that changes everything. And that's what this psalm is really all about, is there's a God who's high, high above everything, who made everything, and he makes us in his image. And he cares about the littlest things, particularly the poor and the needy, and he lifts them up from the ash heap. And so the question we have to, to, to wrestle with, is our God just top circle only, or is our God only bottom circle only? And how do the two interact? And in theological terms or in philosophy, you'll hear these terms about God being either transcendent or God being imminent. And they've led to these two heresies. And C.S. Lewis says heresies or Satan's lies always come in pairs to get you to gravitate to one so that you'll really despise the other, but now you're falling for the trap of the other. You think about that, it's pretty big. But the reality is, if your God is only upper story and he never comes down here, what do you have? You have deism, you have skepticism, you have agnosticism. You can't know him, he's unknowable. Or he's deistic, he made it and then he's hands off and you can't know him. And the God doesn't intervene with his world. But if he's only bottom circle, then you have naturalism or pantheism but that God doesn't change our lives. This is what Christopher Walken, Watkin in his book, Biblical Critical Theory, says about this. He says, for most of history, and with a vengeance since Immanuel Kant, Western thought has considered the transcendent to be mysterious, unknowable, absolutely other, whereas the imminent is accessible, known, and vir virtually indistinguishable from the rest of our experience. These concepts yield either a God who, if he's transcendent, is so other to us that he can have precious little idea what he, she, them is like, if, or a God who is imminent, who dissolves into our everyday lives and becomes indistinguishable from anything and everything else. Neither deity is likely to bother us, but neither can either satisfy us. 
They're also incompatible. Transcendence and imminence have been cleaved apart on the butcher's block, packaged and sold separately as the distinct cuts of the ineffable holy other and the intimate God in all things. And so what you, what you have now between your two circles is an N and a U. And you're going to get all of philosophy and an N and a U. Here it is. With Plato and the Enlightenment, what you have is an N. It's an N-shaped ascent to knowledge. Like Plato in the cave, he has to go up out. You, when you make an N, you draw up. This is man trying to get to God. He's got to go up to get to God to find knowledge. And then he comes down with the knowledge like Plato back into the cave because he's gotten out into the light. That's where the world is, trying to find knowledge, trying to get to God, trying to all paths lead to God. We, we're going to move upward toward God. That's the N-shaped approach. But the gospel and the Bible is the U-shape. And the U-shape is this, and this is what Christopher Walken says. He says, the N-shaped epistemology in Plato's cave John, in his gospel by diametric contrast, reverses the direction of travel. It's not that one accustomed to darkness ascends to the light, but the light shines in the darkness. We do not scramble upwards to enlightenment. It comes down to us, bringing the fruit of God's grace, the right to become children of God. And this is what you have in the psalm that God is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like him? That he's seated on high, and yet he humbles himself or stoops far down on the heavens and the earth. He comes down like the U, and then he brings us up with him. That's the U-shaped approach. That's called Christianity. And so what the Bible says is things like this, Isaiah 66, 2 and Isaiah 57, 15. I think we've got a slide of those where God says some amazing thing. He says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. There's transcendence, but also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God comes down. He's imminent. You see, our God intervenes into our life. And then you have Isaiah 66, 2, where he says, All things, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who is the Lord ultimately talking about? When you read a verse like that and it says he looks down on the, the lowly and the one who's humble and contrite trembles at my word. And you read last week like a psalm that says, I will praise him all my life with all my being. There's only one who's done that perfectly. There's only one who's really trembled at his word and who's been humble and contrite in spirit. And he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, God came down so far that he was God who became man. And what this psalm is ultimately pointing us to is Jesus. You see, this psalm specifically remembers the Exodus. These are the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. They were sung at the Passover. And Psalm 118, 113 to 118 
is what Jesus sang before he went out and prayed in the garden and was betrayed by Judas and arrested and crucified. And most likely, the very hymn that he sang when he went with his disciples, it says they sang a hymn. It was, a, it was an Egyptian Hallel psalm, most likely Psalm 113, that he just sang. And it, the Psalm 113 is the first of these six psalms that were sung, these praise psalms celebrating God's deliverance of his oppressed people who were small and who were being overrun by this powerful authority of the Egyptians. And God reached down and had mercy and he raised up the poor from the dust. And ultimately he's getting at, this is what he did for God's people who were in captivity. And so this, these psalms were sung at the three great feasts, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of the New Moons. But ultimately they were sung at the Passover. And so this psalm was sung there. But if you look at the psalm, Again, we see that the psalm is referring directly to Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? Hannah was grieved greatly because she couldn't have any children. And Hannah prayed to God for a child. And God gave her a child. And then we see that Mary, in her song, she refers back to Hannah's song. So if you have, you have the slide of that, of the, the verses, it's in the back of your bulletin with the scripture verses. But look at this verse where Hannah's prayer, this is what she says. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's Hannah's prayer. Does that look like any particular verse in this psalm, like verse 7? You see, and then Mary and her psalm of, of her now having a child, she refers back to Hannah's psalm, and she's also been reminded that God looks on the humble. He looks down upon the humble. Same idea. And the idea here is this, is that God comes down, and he looks on those that are in the ash heap, and ultimately he's looking at his son. And so you think about this, this song, this psalm, is that Mary's going to sing this when she um, is before she gives birth to Jesus. And, and Hannah sang this as she's looking back on her deliverance. But the reality is this. As one Hebrew scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says this. What is, that when you come to a place in the Bible where it talks about barrenness, and that's how this psalm is going to end, anybody who, who understands that culture and context would know that that's an, the, the most effective metaphor for hopelessness. That barrenness in that culture and time is that there's not, no foreseeable future for self, family, and people without children. And there's no human power to invent a future. So this is the utter epitome of hopelessness. And God is coming to give hope to this woman named Hannah. And so these verses look back at the Psalm of Hannah, and this is how Derek Kidner puts it. I like this. He says, with such a background, the psalm not only makes its immediate point that the Most High cares for the most humiliated, but brings to mind the train of events that can follow from such an intervention. Hannah's joy became all of Israel's. Sarah's became the world's. And the song of Hannah was to be outshone one day by, the, by Mary's song in the Magnificat. You see, God is bringing hope into the world. And he brings it through Sarah. And then he brings it through Hannah. 
And then he brings it through Mary because God reaches down to the needy and to the ash heap. And the idea of the ash heap is this idea of when you think literally about an ash heap, think slumdog millionaire. Because the word is literally translated dunghill. And the idea is that it's the rubbish heap. It's the garbage heap. And when you went out of the city and in Jerusalem, like any city, had, had a garbage heap. It had a dunghill. It had an ash heap. It was called Gehenna. And that's where you get the words for hell. And that's where there was a constant fire burning, where you burned up the trash. Well, the the super poor actually go to the trash and they're looking for things of something to find, to live on. That's where you threw your garbage, outside of town. Well, there was a man from Nazareth who went there to the ash heap. The ultimate incinerator, the ultimate ash heap, it was Jesus. He was born in a manger. There's no room from the inn. He's the outsider. He's poor. And then we get to Hebrews 13, and we're told that while the, the blood of those animals is brought into the holy place by the high priest for sin, their bodies are burned outside. And Jesus was burned outside the city as a sacrifice for his people. They were thrown onto the ash, onto the rubbish heap. That's where this, the bodies, the animal bodies would actually literally be burned there. Well, that's where Jesus went. And he did this for our salvation. There's a guy named Chris Lungard who wrote a book on the glory of God, and he says this. He says, there's a phrase in the Nicene Creed that I can hardly get past without something catching in my throat or my eyes growing mist. Speaking of Christ, the Nicene Creed reminds us that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And then he says this, maybe his love is too close to the surface of these doctrines for me to hurry over them. I can't shuffle past his motivation. The motivation laid out in the Nicene Creed for us, And for our salvation, he came down for us and for our salvation. He says, I marvel at what he did for us, that he came down. You see, our God cares about the poor. He lifts the needy, and ultimately he sends his son into the the ash heap, and he fulfills this ultimate connection to connect the dots, that he is the creator but he became a creature. He came down to bring us back up for the you. And, and we, we sing all these songs, you know, that are just part of the language of our culture. And, and we, we just sing along and we just love them, but they're telling a much bigger story. Just listen to some of these songs that we think are just so wonderful. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. That's God. Nobody else can do that. You're going to climb over Mount Denali to get to somebody? No, you're not climbing that. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, longer than there have been stars up in the heavens, I've been in love with you. I am in love with you. I think Dan Fogelberg is writing about something else because no human love can do that. How deep is your love? How deep is your love, the Bee Gees would sing. I really want to know because we're living in a world of fools breaking us down. 
I believe in you. You know the door to my very soul. You're the light in my deepest, darkest hour. You're my savior when I fall. How deep is your love? How deep is your love? I really want to know because we're living in a world of fools breaking us down. You see, the songs, they, they, they don't work horizontally. They, people sing about them, we sing them, but there, there's something much more transcendent, universal that has to be, what are you really singing about? There's no mountain high enough. No valley low enough, no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. He who is above the heavens came all the way down to get you, to rescue you from your plight, to save you from your sin. And that's what we talk about in this creed in Philippians 2 where the Apostle Paul is most likely citing a hymn. And he's talking about God who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God did something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And the nothing is taking on humanity to himself, and he goes to a cross, and then he tells us that that attitude is to be in us. If this is how God is, and this is how he treats his people, then how are we to treat people? You see, we are to be a people that do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. We're to look not only to our own interests, but to the interest of others because our attitude is to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. There's, there's nothing too low because our God went lower to save us from our sin. That's what this psalm is getting at. God cares. As great as he is, as transcendent as he is, he's imminent. And he's involved in our world, and he cares about the little things. Even a barren woman named Hannah, and a barren woman named Sarah, and Mary. And he blessed them, and the world is not the same. So as we come to the table, let's be reminded that our God loves us, even us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that those who think little of themselves, you think a lot of. Forgive us for we're the ones who have exalted ourselves, thought we were high, tried to lift ourselves up, and we've been brought down and humbled. And how we give thanks today that our Lord Jesus, who was high and lifted up, became so low on a cross to pay for our sin. Lord, move us to praise, move us to wonder, to love, to delight, to astonishment as we come to your table to know that we will meet our creator face to face who is our redeemer. Prepare us for that day for we ask in your name. Amen.